the Glowing Older Podcast is brought to you by Salt Chamber, the pioneer and leader in salt therapy, bringing flexible respiratory wellness solutions to senior living communities and home care environments. Hello and welcome to the Glowing Older Podcast, where we interview experts on innovation in senior living and the business of aging well. I'm your host, Nancy Griffin, and I'm so pleased to be here today with Dr. Carrie Burnight, founder and principal of The Gerontologist, Inc. Welcome to the program, Carrie. Oh, thank you, Nancy. I'm a fan of the program. Oh, thank you so much. Well, before we dig into all that you're doing, tell us a little bit about your background. I am a gerontologist, and I got my PhD in the study of aging about 25 years ago, and then spent 20 years um, as a professor of geriatric medicine at the University of California, Irvine. And there I got really interested in the incredible difference in how people age and their experiences. So from this whole time, it's been all about the extent to which we can each map our course to the best second half of life. You have a firm called the Gerontologist Inc. and you do um, advisory services. Tell us a little bit about that and who your clientele is. After having worked well first, you know, for the university and then in the, for government and then in the nonprofit, I went into the private sector because I was so encouraged by the innovation there and the ability to really. Um, roll out scalable solutions. And now I'm working with some incredible innovators all over the world, um, working to create a new longevity. And so these companies are providing care options at home, using artificial intelligence in order to create much better experiences as we age, um, training caregivers, because that is such a, a real challenge right now of having enough of a care ratio for all of us turning 65, I think 10,000 of us every day joining the ranks. Um, so I work with a multitude of companies. And through that, I feel really optimistic about what this future is going to hold for us. So I hear you saying that you think that the private sector is perhaps more innovative than the gerontology uh, profession. <laughs> I would not say that. I think we all <laughs> we all need one another. So I think like incredible colleagues in academia who are really you know they're solid research. And, you know, we have to have government solutions. I worked for a long time with Adult Protective Services um, nationally, and we need those services and need to continue to fund those services. The nonprofit sector has a great role to play, and, and so many people don't have anybody as they get older and don't have the means to, you know, get medications or food. But I have erroneously vilified the private sector <laughs> and having gotten into it in the past, I don't know, seven years, I've seen how much good and um, how much need. So I can't turn, turn my back on my previous decades, but certainly going forward, I intend to stay in the private sector. 
Well, it seems like that's um, really the gift that you're bringing to the industry is the knowledge of both. I, I, I've heard from some other gerontologists that they feel like they, um, they, their perspective really needs to be heard and that there is not enough attention, respect for that profession. It's a problem because people um, think, um, well, we, you know, I have a grandmother. I kind of know what the aging experience is like. Let's create a product or a solution um, based on anecdotal um, experience. And although the heart is in the right place, the problem is, is there is such um, as I said, heterogeneity in the population. I mean, show me an 18-month-old and I can tell you just what they're doing. Show me an 81-year-old and we have such a diverse, you know, some 81-year-olds are water skiing, some are very, very conservative, some are very liberal, some can run a marathon, others can't get out of bed. So to say that without study, you somehow know the problems experienced with by people in their seventh, eighth, ninth, and 10th decades is problematic. So we have got to marry the academic study, both the medical, so people who are geriatricians who have MDs and those who have PhDs, um, and also be careful because some people call themselves gerontologists with very little training. So I would advise companies to really ask uh, gerontologists that they're working with, what their background has been. Interesting. I didn't realize that there was some wiggle room with with degrees and and that. Yes, I occasionally, you know, for the most part, you know, people have a master's degree or a PhD, um, but there are some people who, you know, just have had experience with older people and call themselves a gerontologist, and so just you know. Just be aware of that. Yes, and and you're firmly rooted in the academic world with 18 years as a professor of geriatric medicine, UC Irvine. During your time there, uh, you founded the Ageless Alliance United Against Elder Abuse. Tell us about this and why um, you felt it was so necessary to bring this out. Yes, uh, as many of you know, elder abuse is a $37 billion business. And the reason for it is that um, people are preying upon um, older adults, some of whom are isolated, some of whom live with cognitive impairment, and many of whom are absolutely fine, but are just duped by very devious, very savvy methods of um, control and financial exploitation. So um, what happened was I was at the university and we were getting cases from law enforcement of the mistreatment of older adults. And what we found is that adult protective services, the district attorney, public guardian, you know, the medical community were all quite siloed. And even our terminology was different. So, for example, we in the medical community would say patient and then the, um, you know, somebody else would say victim and somebody else would say client. And so we got all the players in who are helping to eradicate and prevent elder abuse into one room and created the nation's first elder abuse forensic center. So in our county, uh, that's Orange County, California, we had over a thousand reports of elder abuse, neglect and mistreatment every month. And um, so 
we were able to come together and we really needed, it had to be multidisciplinary to identify the perpetrators, to line up, to make the try to make the victims whole again, which is really hard. You know, it's really tough once people have lost the confidence as a result of having money stolen or as a result of like, for example, psychological abuse, um, people saying you do, you'll never see your grandkids again. And the other important point is that we've, we think, well, it's these perpetrators, these scam artists, it is, but it's also can be family members. And that was the part that was perhaps most disheartening. And that is that people within the same families would be taking advantage of people um, so that they didn't have money to live on because one of the adult children had, you know, changed the documentation so that there was no money there to pay for the care of the older person. So it was a real eye opener. So what did, um, what did the nonprofit accomplish? Is it, is it still in, in existence? So there were two things. So one was, it was a, ended up being a we started with grant funding to create the Elder Abuse Forensic Center. And then from that, the government over time um, paid for it. And now they've been replicated across the nation. And so they have worked on, I don't even know the number these days, but probably probably 10,000 cases. Um, wow. And then the nonprofit was an additional arm. <clears throat> and our hope was to be kind of a mothers against drunk driving in terms of raising awareness and so Ageless Alliance um, was a source that media, for example, could go to because we, we'd want to do a story and they would say, OK, we need to have, you know, talk to somebody who has endured this and talk to family members. And yet people were hesitant to talk about it, understandably. So we would work with families in order to, if they felt comfortable to think about how to talk about this, to say that you, this is not a shame on the older person. It is a shame on those who are scamming older people. I have not been, it, it gets to be hard in nonprofits and everyone's like, of course, this is true, but you're always raising money all the time. So it's incredibly important work. And I take my hats off so much to those who run nonprofits because just keeping the lights on was tough. Yes, and I was so happy to hear that you were able to replicate the program nationally. These programs are so critical, um, just as a, examples and uh, kind of could the answers to the test of how to roll out these types of programs. Uh, but I know one of the things that you talk about um, a lot these days are, um, is age tech. Um, so I'd love if you could talk to us about some of the technologies that you feel are at the forefront of improving the quality of life for older adults. Oh, I'd love to. And so where I start with tech is it's is not in the technology, but it is in the problems, like the challenges that we're trying trying to solve. So I always really think about how to deeply understand what the situation is, because a lot of times we come in with solutions based on erroneous assumptions. Um, so to give an example, it it this issue of loneliness, right? People think if an older person lives alone, they're lonely. But you dig into it and you find people can be really lonely with other people and people can be just fine 
being alone, right? Yes. So it's it's much more complicated than just oh, you are eighty, you live by yourself, therefore you are lonely. That's that's not good logic. And solutions, tech solutions based on that thinking, aren't going to succeed. So the most exciting part in technology is the high touch, the listening. So enabling companies to go in and systematically use both the literature and equally important, the qualitative listening and focus groups and challenging of assumptions. And my biggest success with companies is when they say, they stop with the they, they this, they that, they, and to start thinking about it as we. So, you know, I'll always say older people are not aliens. <laughs> you, It's not a whole different kind of thing. It's it's where we are now. So I'm in my 50s plus additional insight, additional challenges, additional um, like um, developmental legacies that are intended to happen. And here's an example. So I have teenagers. Their job is to break away from me. And so that's why one of the reasons they say, oh, mom, you're so embarrassing. Get away. <laughs> um <laughs> So I hope I hope that's one of the reasons. And then the, the for older adults, a developmental imperative is legacy and autonomy. So there's terrific work. There's a great book called How to Say It to Seniors by my colleague, um, David Soli. And he talks about legacy and autonomy. And you need to understand that going in, putting on your superhero cape. And charging in to say, mom or client, let me help take care of you. That's going to be in the opposite um, of what the person is developmentally hungry for. And that is autonomy. Saying, I got this. Back away. I have been around this earth a long time. I got this, right? So coming in with a piece of technology um, for example, a sensor or a home delivered meals or a new model of providing medical care in the home, we need to think about addressing it, approaching it with that listening that lead that will, if you listen, lead to autonomy and legacy. How is this person who is older in the proverbial driver's seat? How is this person? How does this tie in with how they see themselves in the world? how their family will see them and remember them. And so it's it's so very person first and so very um, not cookie cutter. Wow. I mean, that that's really some, some powerful information. And, you know, I know there are some tech companies out there that have beta teams of older adults uh, checking out the, the technologies. But it, it seems like if you're developing a technology without some real people who are going to use it aboard, that you're, you're doing it in a vacuum. It will bite you. It will bite you <laughs> in the rear. And also people, you know, sometimes feel proud that they have a small group of advisors, for example, who are older, but you go in and you look at a meeting and they're all white, they're all affluent, they're all heterosexual, and that it doesn't represent those that we're going to serve. So really 
thinking about the broad net, which is people of color, people of different sexual preferences, people who don't have the money to pay for what it is you're offering, right? So a wide range of voices, and it can't all be people that are cheering for you. You know, it can't be family members who are, no matter what silly thing you offer, they're going to say, oh, that's great because they don't want to hurt your feelings. And I've seen that over and over. And, um, you know, I have a 93-year-old mom and I'm blessed. And I ask her about all these different technologies. But often what she says is in direct contradiction to 10 other people that I ask. (laughs) So if I had only listened to her, I would have developed a product that was destined to fail. Wow, that that's really good advice. Aside from age tech, any other trends that you feel um, deserve mention? Yes, I think a trend that deserves mention is really thinking about enabling people to age in place and um, also the combination of being able to be where you, it's not even age in place really, if you think about it, it's age where you want to age. So for many people, it is senior housing and these modern, fun amenities, social, you know, to have that choice to be able to afford to go to these wonderful places and also to have the choice of, uh, I'm working with a company and and also a family right now and that the wife is living with Alzheimer's disease and the husband is very active and trying to navigate how to be partially living at home and partially living in senior housing. And so it's been a great and innovative combination of the two. And there's a bit of a back and forth and there's a bit of a time in each place. And it's uh, more of a creative model than just, oh, you're a certain age. Now it's time to pack up and get out of your house. That, that's a, a hybrid uh, model that uh, we at Senior Trade and Glowing Older have been talking about a while is a, the whole senior living as a service that, you know, yes. de- decoupling the, the service and the product. Yes, yes. And it's terrific because um, this lady, she's enjoying going to what feels sort of like a country club or a club. And has gotten very comfortable and making friends and then coming back and sleeping in her bed, except when her husband travels, she goes and stays at the fun club with her friends for some time. And, you know, he's worried that he's going to pass away before she does. So it's just giving him incredible peace of mind. Um, And it just, again, back to autonomy so that people can do this their way and proactively too. So I love companies and solutions that encourage the conversation. And we can talk about dying. We can talk about cognitive impairment and functional changes and it's okay, right? You know, it's, it's, we're definitely going to get older and we're definitely going to die. And that's not anything that should be such a downer or a taboo. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, and and right now it it still is. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I hear people saying, "Oh, my dad is talking all about, you know, like when he dies, this and that." And so then I say to my friends, "Well, 
do you think he's not going to die? You know, like, you know, that's definitely going to happen. And maybe, you know, open up that conversation and say, let's talk about it. Let's make sure that this, you were savoring this time in a way that sounds good to you um, because it isn't going to be forever. Exactly. Well, I um, I know that you're working on a project with my friend Angela Burton from Feed to the Fire, who's been a guest on our podcast. Um, tell us about your book project. Well, you know, in life, you find kindred spirits. And I have loved Angela Burton's work. Um, she created Feet to the Fire that is enabling older adults to encouraging, enabling, and fostering older adults' writing. And she was a professor of writing and is a beautiful writer herself. And so I love her work so much that we got to be friends. And so now we're doing a project. We have a literary agent in order to put together um, a book. And I'm having so much fun drawing on, you know, 30 years of working with older people. And our hope is that we can enable people to choose the way that they age and to recognize that we have been filled to the brim with lies about aging that is fueled by a multi-billion dollar anti-aging industry. So there isn't one of us who isn't somewhat ageist, myself included. And so by the hope is by linking arms and coming together, um, we can say like, hey, it is not ugly. It is not that I'm doing something wrong. You know, this is this is what 80 looks like. This is 90. And there's like to bring out some of the great things, like it's little known that we have better problem solving abilities in our 70s, 80s, 90s, and 100s. It's little known that we become more resilient, more spiritual, more humble, um, often more humorous. So all these good things don't make money. And because of that, they're not pushed in the media. But what is pushed in the media sometimes is just simply false, that you're going to become a doddering witch of a person and your saggy neck is going to make people hate you. <laughs> so just this very day, I was doing these sadistic exercises called... Um, which we call these burpees. And I had shorts on and I, as I would go down, I would see my legs and, you know, in your fifties, you lose collagen and these saggy, saggy legs of mine. And my first reaction was to go, Oh no. And my second reaction was like, yeah, that, of course, that is what happens physiologically and all other 50 year olds and six year olds and 90 year olds are going to have the same thing. And that doesn't make me any less than. And so by standing up together, like shoulder to shoulder and checking ourselves to not, not buy into the BS in the same way that we have stood up to say, yes, women can vote. Yes, you can be a person of color and be the, you know, Miss America, Miss Universe. And you, there isn't only one way to love. So I, I feel like um, a positive approach to aging and one that is pretty bold can be something just like you're doing this glowing older as it's great to want to look good, but why want to look young? We've already been young. And it, frankly, it wasn't always that great. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I've always been a, a business to business uh, marketer and I feel like starting with the professionals, there's so much, I didn't realize how much ageism and um, stereotyping goes on at the professional level. Yes. Isn't that true? I know it. I some of the tech firms I've nobody I'm working with now, but in the past they've all been in their 20s and you know, I, I, there were times I didn't feel very comfortable at being older and then also what is said within these meetings, you know, calling older people grannies and saying, "Oh, they wouldn't understand that." And even the overuse of the word simple like simple, simple, simple. It's like, you know, guess what? You're talking about yourself. And older people, it's not, it can be elegant. It can be smart in its design. Uh, yesterday at Father's Day, a man walked in with a walker that was so elegant, elegant. And I don't know the company, um, but it was red and it was sleek. And you could tell he felt great on it. And everyone who saw it, had a smile that was like, that looks as cool as an e-bike or a Tesla. So that's, you know, that's what we're going for. Um, products, solutions, services that empower humans. Well, it's so interesting that you said that because Motivo, it might've been a Motivo Walker. They, they were a, a partner of Glowing Older a couple seasons ago. Uh, and it's amazing how few or if none of the senior living companies wanted to talk to them about promoting it or bringing it in because they didn't want anyone to think about people in walkers because that's like bad for marketing, which I thought was ouch. terrible. Yeah. Ouch, 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 ouch. Yeah. I mean, but, but it, you know, that's what I mean about the systemic ageism that goes on in the senior living industry, but that's for another <laughs> podcast. Um, but listen, Terry, what gets you most excited these days? What gets me most excited is the fact for about 30 years, we've been talking about, gosh, 2020, 2030, you know, we are going to have arrived in a time where there's more older people than there is younger people. And so here we are, it's now. And so what this means is that there has never been a greater need for innovation and for people really stepping up to think about healthcare and transportation and entertainment and housing and every aspect of life, romance. Um, and what gets me excited is that there are so many great minds um, in this industry trying to solve these problems. And as I've cautioned, it has to be multidisciplinary. So it requires finance. It requires people who really understand the implementation. It requires technology because everything has a technology component. It requires expertise in gerontology. In, um, it requires firsthand knowledge from the people that we're hoping to serve and their families. So I kind of pinch myself that we are in the best and most meaningful um, area of work. Well, thank you for being one of the innovators and for crossing boundaries uh, between the um, science of gerontology and the business of aging well. Well, thank you for all you're doing to really move the message forward with all these different voices. Well, it's voices like yours that make it successful. So thank you again. Thank you, Nancy. 
You've been listening to the Glowing Older Podcast.